and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. Hello Sam and welcome. I loved reading about what you do and found a few things that we definitely have in common. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'd like it if I may to ask you to introduce yourself. Just a little bit about what you do and where you live perhaps. Thanks. Yeah, I'm Sam Warner and I live in Telford, Shropshire in the UK and I've, uh, I've been born in Devon and then lived in Kent but I'm English through and through. I work with organisations mainly in the IT and finance industries and I help them attract and keep neurodiverse talent to lower their attrition and absence rates and increase their productivity and profits. And I also work with adult individuals in work to help them to thrive. And I run TEDx Telford. Lovely. Thank you very much. And uh, as we go through, I will ask you um, more about your work because it's fascinating. And um, I know I can learn a lot from you. So um, if we just start, uh, the question I ask, of course, all of my guests, uh, what is your neurodivergency? Well, I seem to have collected a, lot, a nice little bag of, of, <laughs> of labels. <laughs> I love a label. I do love a label. Yes, absolutely. So I, I'm a, what would call, be called a type one autistic person as per the DSM-5 as it is now. So what would have been Asperger's? Uh, I also have ADHD. I have pathological demand avoidance. I have sensory processing, they call it disorder, I call it difficulty. I'm a highly sensitive person Me and too. I also have dyslexia, dyspraxia and the one I can never say, uh, prosopagogia, the one face, face blindness. <laughs> yeah, I have face blindness and no, uh, nose blindness, name blindness. And, and it is interesting how many of the um, people that I'm getting on the podcast who have autism, ADHD and PDA. Yeah. I'm learning quite a lot about that. And funnily enough, Harry Thompson keeps coming into the conversation because he's, mm. you know, he's so, he's so good at that. And <clears throat> that is quite a lot of, uh, you know, quite a collection that you have there. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and get, do you mind me asking roughly around the sort of ballpark of how old you are? Yeah, I'm 48. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, I'm 56. And, uh, and, you know, how long did you go? Did you discover, you know, all of these really? I was oblivious until 13 years ago. Right. So at age 35, I had my aha moment. Yes. And what gave you your aha moment? 
Well, I was working in IT and I happened to be working with a load of men. And we'd been talking about where we'd worked before. And they said, oh, that's really weird. Everywhere you've worked before is really male dominated. Why do you like working with men so much? I mean, a thought had never occurred to me. I didn't even notice that that's what I'd done. And I sort of reflected on it and I said, well, I guess guys tend to say what they mean and mean what they say. They're very straightforward with their language in general. And there's no kind of woolly language. There's no kind of hidden agenda. You know, they're very Ron Seal, as I, I say. It does what it says on the tin, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. no mess, no fuss. And I like that because then I don't have to try and work out what they're talking about because they've told me. Yeah. And I'm very good at following instructions. So that worked for them as well, that they could give an instruction and they knew I was going to carry it out. So a great symbiotic relationship there between the guys and me. And one guy said, uh, oh, I found this Asperger's test online. We should do it for a laugh. Uh, so we did it and I scored the highest out of everybody. Gosh. I scored 42 out of 50. That is high. The, the guide on the, the test said, if you score over 32 out of 50, chances are you probably do have Asperger's. You might want to go and seek a diagnosis. Well, I went to my doctor and my doctor said, oh, you're definitely not autistic. No, not a chance in hell. You kept my eye contact. You're speaking to me. I'm in full sentences. You're not fidgeting around. Uh, you're not sort of rocking gently in your seat. or sake, yeah. All that sort of stereotypical stuff. And you're a woman. And, you know, you're, you're married, you own a house and you've had a 25 year career. Uh, so you know, you're definitely not autistic. I'm not going to refer you. And I'm like, OK, I guess I'll do my own research then. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what many of us do, Sam. So what happened then? What, what was your journey to assessment and diagnosis? Uh, well, so because uh, that doctor wouldn't put me through, I did go for a second, second opinion and he wouldn't either. And he said, actually, oh. the reason isn't because I don't believe that you might be autistic because um, I know a bit about this and chances are you've masked for so long. Yes. You, you now present as a neurotypical person now, which makes diagnosis tricky. Diagnosis tools are geared towards six-year-old boys, not adult females. Yeah. And actually, there aren't any services where you live for adults. So what's the purpose of even putting you on the list, to be honest? You're going to be waiting 18 months to two years to even see somebody. And then it takes a further six months or so to go through the process. So we'll just leave you then? Basically, yeah. It was like, there's no point. There's people who, who need it far more than you do kind of thing. Charming. Then I went to look at private diagnosis and they started at a thousand pounds and I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, me too. Yeah, mine was. I don't have a spare grand. So, no, I'm, I, so this research rampage just carried on. And I reckon I know more than the psychiatrists who diagnose people. 100%. Because of the stuff that I've learned and, the, yeah. and read and listened to. <clears throat> you know, I've been hanging out with thousands of autistic people online in various groups listening to their stories and how they perceive the world sharing mine as well and i've picked up more real information there than ever you could out of a textbook written by a neurotypical person i don't well i agree i mean that could mirror um a lot of that you know i went to um i went i, I paid the thousand pounds and i had two psychologists who are very very nice you know very nice um neurotypical pathologized um women 
and uh, there, there wasn't a hope. There wasn't a hope. They said I had autism traits, which means nothing and is rubbish. Um, and they said oh, it was childhood trauma, and I, and I haven't got any childhood trauma. I had lots of things happen because I was ADHD that I didn't know and autistic, but I didn't have childhood trauma. Um, and then I saw Sarah Hendricks, and she was amazing. And uh, she, you know, she diagnosed me, and I was perfectly happy with that. And this is repeated time and time again, certainly for late diagnosed women. So that is really hard, isn't it? I just want to go back to the thing about men, which is so interesting because I, I had no idea until I was 55. So um, when I was young, um, you know, at, at secondary school, I was always trying to fit in and I was always trying to fit in with the, with the girls. And I really wish I'd just hung out with the boys. I, it would have been so much better because I was a tom, such a tomboy when I was um, young, but I had no idea. So I was mimicking the girls and I would take, I would go like a harpoon to the, the top bully of the school and then get really badly bullied. Yeah, I didn't have a hope in hell. If I'd st stuck with the lads, I would have been much better. So I, I, I'm with you 100% on that. So how was it for you growing up? You know, perhaps just talk a little bit about, you know, your home life and school. When you, were, when you were younger, you know, child. Yeah, I mean, even in primary school, because my parents had already started teaching us stuff preschool, I was streets ahead, if that's the right term. I'm yes. very good at mixing my metaphors. Like, Oh, uh, I love that, yeah. Please forgive me for any, anything like that. Yes, I love a malaprop. Oh, yeah, I'm the queen. <laughs> 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 and so, I mean, I, I knew the phonetic alphabet before I went to school. And they're like trying to teach me ah, but cut, and I'm like Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta, you know. Yes, and, yeah. And they're like, oh dear, what are we going to do with her, sort of thing, you know. And when I was drawing and colouring in, everything had the right colours, everything was coloured inside the lines, and they're like, she's like an eight-year-old, but she's five. <laughs> and they didn't have a clue. They couldn't see that. Not a chance. No. And they wanted me to stay with my age group, my peers, despite me having zero friends or connection with the other children couldn't connect with them, preferred to hang out with adults even at primary level. I was always the one talking to the dinner lady for the entire duration of lunchtime. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, perhaps I would have been better off had I been homeschooled or went to like a Montessori school, more experiential, more yeah. challenging, because I was a massive sponge and they couldn't give me enough information because yes. I, I was kind of held back, if you like. Yes. Um, and even when I got to like 11 plus stage, I think I scored the highest the school had ever had, which was pretty brilliant. Didn't really mean anything in particular. I was still going to go to the same school. Um, and there wasn't one person that, that noticed it. And so, you know, I mean, hadn't, hadn't they even seen some of these wonderful films with the mass genius and they know that they're all, you know, Asperger's or anything? Never ever mentioned the first time I was even aware of autism as a thing in this universe was Rain Man. Yes. The film. Which yeah. is 1995 or something. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. It, definitely 90s. And uh, it was, you had some kids that were quirky, some kids that were slow. You had other kids that were academically quick and they were like in the top not set we didn't have sets in primary school because there's only 30 kids in the class but 
they knew, everybody knew the top five or six kids were probably going to go to the grammar school and the middle chunk would be going to the mainstream secondary modern and the the five or six kids it, who struggled uh, there was a bit of a question mark about where they'd go you know in another class or to a special school yeah yeah or possibly thrown in at the deep end at the secondary mod mm-hmm. which is more more than likely what happened uh, and then they'd be in the bottom set because they did have streaming so I went to a grammar school and I at first stupidly thought brilliant I'm going to a school where everybody wants to learn and everybody wants to get really good grades and it's going to be like going to a university in my head that's what I thought it would be like like yeah was it at all (laughs) what happened well it was all the bright kids had gone there but they was they you know they've still got a personality they're still not very nice people some of them yeah and so you know I was bullied mercilessly throughout my school life because I was eccentric because I was a bit different um I I don't know whether I was a bit of a threat academically so because that became a reason to punch me I stopped being good because you know I can do maths if you're good at what you do you get punched That's oh dear if if you're average at what you do and you fade into the the mists yeah under the radar yeah they leave you alone yes and if you don't go too far down and start underperforming the teachers leave you alone as well yes yeah yeah (laughs) in the gray area deliberately in the gray area and i probably could have done really really well i mean I, i did get all my gcse's and i got three a levels and stuff like that but it was all very mediocre and I, I I felt like academically I was two or three years ahead of who I was put the class I was in but emotionally I was most definitely five years behind and that's so difficult I mean how you know what did your um your parents think about that and you know was it frustrating for them because you know, I, I know how many times I went into school for quite different reasons with my family, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard for them as well because you're, you're frustrated and you're not, you know, you're not reaching your potential, I suppose. Yeah. So I didn't know that my parents were also autistic. What did you think that, that their quirks and, and interesting they behaviour quirks. Was like? They were just my parents. Yeah. So you didn't see anything different because you were all the same. Yeah. And I didn't know that other people's parents didn't do what my parents did. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my dad especially, he he would be a type two autistic. Right. Uh, He he went into the Royal Marines because rules and regulations suited him perfectly. Black and white. There is no grey. And then he went on to be a policeman for a second career same thing black and white rules and regulations this is the way it's done and that's it my way or the highway and that's how he was at home you did as you were told and that was it um and he was very explicit with instructions and you you were expected to follow them and i actually really like that because there's nothing woolly about that it's like here are five instructions do them in the order i gave them to you and we're good 
<laughs> that's really really interesting that you say that um as a sideline my dad was uh, a marine commando in the national service and that was the best time of his life although now my brain's going on oh god don't tell me my dad was as well he's dead now so i can't ask him but uh, but it's interesting what you're saying because you're autistic adhd and pda and i know i have some demand avoidance and i do and i love structure and routine but I hate structure and routine. And I, with the um, demand avoidance, I have a problem with putting demands on myself and other people putting them on. So we're a paradox and we're fighting each other. How did that affect you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why the book I'm writing is called Walking Contradiction. <laughs> oh, perfect, perfect. Because <laughs> I am exactly that too. So I had the, the structure <coughs> of school where I had to get up at 6.45 every single day, my parents made it very clear from the age of 11, um, as soon as I went into my grammar school, I was now responsible for getting myself to school on time. They were not going to be waking me up. I would, you know, get myself up, get myself dressed, um, fed, etc., down to the train, get the right train, etc., etc. Very, very yeah. independent from an early age. Yeah. And, and they, they just did what they could with what they had in terms yeah. of what they know. They, they had a very tough upbringing. They were both sent to convents. So they had a horrific school experience as children. Yeah. Um, so very difficult for them now having three kids, because I've got two brothers, who go to day school, who seem to be having the life of O'Reilly. And compared to them, you know, their life was hard. Ours is idyllic. So the fact that I spent every summer at home on my own, in my bedroom, cataloging records, making things, yeah. writing stories was perfectly normal to my parents and they actually I think they were really chuffed that I was at home safe and doing my own thing and also because you're doing that and I and I was in my room doing my thing mainly calling dial disc and listening to um, some soppy song about 50,000 times um, <laughs> you know they know you're safe there either you're in you know you're in your room and if they're both um, neurodivergent as well then they can get on with what they need to do their structures their sensory issues their oh. their own things too so you so um you know you went on then and i'm really interested to know how you went on because you went to college and university and and you tell me a little bit about that did, did you find your place then were you able to do what you wanted to do and actually i'll add this in if that's okay did, did you have any mental health issues at this time um you know or, and if you did would they have come from any life events or from your neurodivergency just you know give me a, a little story around there please sam okay uh so whilst i was still at school uh i had a body dysmorphia okay and as a, a way of controlling something in my life because my parents controlled a large part and then school controlled the other part so yeah. i had no control over my life at all mm. but to exert control i i felt i had two avenues self-harm or reduce what i eat and ch change my body so i went for the change my body option and i ended up with anorexia athletica where i felt compelled to do more exercise than I needed to do. Yes. And I was tied into doing a thousand sit-ups, a thousand press-ups, a thousand leg raises on each leg before I could go to bed every night. Oh, so that it, is an it was enormous amount, isn't it? Yeah, it was really intense. And I literally couldn't go to sleep unless I'd done it. It was almost like 
my punishment is that I'm not allowed to go to sleep unless it's done. But did you suffer with um, any cramps or anything like that in the night from putting no. your muscles through so much? No, not then. I suffered later on in my 20s um, where I, I don't think I have Ehlers Danlos, but I have loose joints. So, yes, I've, I've heard that a lot through my clients. Yeah. Um, so so I, I would, I don't know, I'd be relaxing, sat cross-legged, and then I'd be aware that my hips actually kind of just kind of come, come out of socket a bit. Yes, yeah. I had to kind of give me a sec. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> sounds gruesome, but you know, so many people did that, you know, in shallow sockets as well, I've heard mm. about. And there is hypermobility. It doesn't have to go all the way into EDS, but uh, I do know, I, I, you know, I do know what you mean by that. And uh, if, you know, if you don't mind me asking, you know, how bad did it get? Well, so I'm five for eight and right. I, I got down to just below nine stone, which I do not look good at at all. Yeah. For me to look fit, athletic, healthy, I should be about 11 stone. Yes. I've got broad shoulders. We're a kind of swimming family. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I looked underweight. Right. Yeah. I wasn't skinny. I wasn't hospitalized. I didn't go that far. Yeah. Uh, I, I kept catching colds. And so I went to the doctors and just had a chat with him. And he said, well, one of the reasons is because you're so malnourished. Um, he said last time I saw you you were a lot bigger no, I wasn't fat I was just you were right for your frame yeah and he just said I noticed that you're a lot thinner than when I last saw you can I just ask what sort, what sort of things are you eating and I was I, I just told him straight I wasn't going to hide anything I was having a, a small tin of soup and four Jacob's crackers every day at tea time when I came in from school like four o'clock I didn't sit down with mom and dad for dinner and that mum was okay with that because she'd seen me eat some dinner earlier. Yes, yeah. And I was eating three polos at lunchtime. And I did that for a year. That's incredible. And, and I'm, I, it's, what's amazing is what the body can actually survive on. A very good friend of mine's son um, is probably between a, a type two, type three um, Asperger's. And he went to the GP and said he has um, blackcurrant fruit shoot, yogurt, banana, and chocolate, not very much of. And the doctor turned around and said, you can live on that. Don't worry too much about that and sent him on his way. But for you to be living on that for a whole year, it's really hard. I mean, how was, um, how was college and university for you as you started progressing? Yeah, so I stayed at school for my A-levels so uh, because I couldn't face leaving because, like I said, I was emotionally behind, I'll call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then I took a year off because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a pop star. I wanted to do things that just were out of reach for me and yeah. definitely weren't encouraged by the school. God forbid I should actually have a, a goal and actually be encouraged to work towards it. Yeah. No, no, no. We want you to be ready for corporate like all the other robots. Um, With you. And then, so I, I worked uh, just at a BP garage. I just managed that for a year. And then I, I just realised, yeah, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and you wouldn't want to be doing it now. I'm, I'm talking, well, there's well, been the fuel challenges with BP, so you definitely wouldn't want to have that job now. Definitely but, but the independence of uh, wanting to earn your own money. I mean, I, yeah. I was def 15, I have a fish and chip shop, you know, and it's, it does give you the freedom and the control then, doesn't it? Absolutely. And being given responsibility, being trusted by somebody yes. was really great for me 
to know that I can be trusted. I can yeah. take on responsibility. That's a good thing. Mm. I don't have to worry about that. Whereas my brother was really rubbish with responsibility and really awful with authority figures. So he was kind of like the opposite of me. Is he, is he neurodivergent? Because you're already um, describing someone who sounds a little bit ADHD. Um, he may well be. Um, I, I, he, he hasn't explored anything. He's very resistant to He's in the, there's nothing wrong with me camp, just like my dad. I've got three of those. Yeah, but he's definitely got pathological demand avoidance, and I would say ADHD as as a as a friend of that. Yes, um, at the very limit, that that's what definitely he's very childlike. Considering he's fifty three, yes, he, he acts like a twenty three year old. Mm, and I think a lot of it, uh, I do. I mean, my I'm eight, fourteen, twenty four, forty five, and then where I am now, and I I go between those depending on if I'm sort of parent adult child you know and <clears throat> excuse me um and and i and i do understand that so so ca carry on with the story please what happened what happened next yeah so i what i wanted to do was run my own business because i didn't really fancy working for other people particularly it didn't just didn't appeal to me I mean, I, I liked working at the BP garage, but I wanted to run the BP garage <laughs> so good for you uh I don't know whether it was arrogance or whatever, but I was like, but I could do this so much better than the way you do. <laughs> and don't we do that? We can do it better than somebody else. Because I could see all the things that, that could be changed for the better. I mean, I even completely converted the stock room, which Palmer and Harvey would turn up with all the stock. They would just sort of throw it into the stock room and it would be all over the place. So trying to find the stock to stock the shelves was a nightmare. So I yeah. took everything out of the stockroom one Saturday. I wasn't even paid for it. I just had to do it. And then put everything back in the stockroom in a logical order for how you would stock the shop and then labelled everything so everything would go back on the same shelf. Where it now you, you haven't told me this before and I haven't seen this in any of anything I've written, I've read about you. I was manager at Fat Face <laughs> and I did exactly the same thing <laughs> Storeroom. How funny is that? We're like we're like a Tasmanian devil, aren't we? No, that's not going to work. Straight in there, ran around around oh, getting yeah. it done. And then of course, another employee would go, um, "Did you ask permission to do that?" No. And I was like, "What? <laughs> <laughs> Why would I need to ask permission to create a much more efficient room?" Yeah. That just that's barking. That is. <laughs> But I, I very quickly learned, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I very quickly learned at corporate, you have to ask permission almost to pee. You know, you have to know your place. You have to, you know, stay in your lane, know your grade. Don't stick your head above the parapet, all that sort of rubbish. Anyway, you've been a bit back to front. Now, I know it's really, really interesting that you said that and you've been a bit back to front, but how good is that? Because at 56 was 23 jobs under my belt. If only I'd been in my 20s and started my own business. But, you know, I've got a fabric of incredible different skills that I've stitched together over my life, and it's really good. But I have a son who's 21, and I'm trying to talk to him about going into business himself and studying to do that. So I'm really fascinated, and I'll stop talking. Tell me more. What did you do? <laughs> well, so I had trouble finding a degree that teaches you how to run your own business because really? when I'm looking, I'm looking early 90s so I, I left school in 91 and I could not find a degree 
that taught you how to run your own business. There just didn't seem to be one. If there was one, it was very well hidden. And how many are there now? One or maybe it was Glasgow or something. And I was like, that's a bit far. Um, So I don't know how many there are now, but it's probably more now because entrepreneurialism is more popular. And uh, so I went for, it was called Water-Based Maritime Leisure Management. Get that for a title. Gosh, I love it. Well, it was business management really so it was how to run your own company or or how to function as a general manager in a company and it used the maritime world as an example so it might be i want to open my own windsurfing school so how would i do that yeah so i didn't really care about the example hotel windsurfing school whatever didn't matter yes it was just a content yeah yeah content to work on sure But I did learn all of the different things, you know, HR, strategy, planning, all of that kind of stuff. Very, very useful. Uh, and I found it challenging because everybody thought I was a lecturer because of the way I carry myself. Well, it didn't help I turned up in a suit as well. So having gone to grammar school where in the last two years when you're doing your A-levels, you came out of uniform and wore a suit for those two years. Yes. And naturally assumed that when you went to uni, you'd still be wearing a suit. Yeah. That just, yeah. just made sense to it me. Thanks. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the teachers were wearing suits. <laughs> Did you keep having students running up to you and saying... Oh, can you tell me where um, my... I I was issued a a lecturer's car parking permit and stuff like that. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not a lecturer. Aren't you? I'm like, no. (laughs) Why do you think I'm a lecturer? So that was quite entertaining. Did you carry Um, on wearing the suit and and having that persona? No, I dropped that very quickly. I wanted to assimilate, you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I didn't want to stand out for all the wrong reasons. And being that it was a maritime sort of course... It was actually not in Solent University's main campus in Southampton. It was on the rivers of the Hamble, which is in Warsash. So there oh, was my a- cousin lives there and I'm from the docks originally. <laughs> Small world. Small yeah. world. And so there we were on the Hamble. And uh, it, yeah, so most people were wearing sort of boardies or Canterbury's or whatever they're called. Uh, and deck shoes and... and polo shirts you know that that was the order of the day really so i had to go and buy those things because i don't own them (laughs) i had to buy buy a pair of jeans because i didn't own a pair of jeans (laughs) they're not very comfortable for us lot really not (laughs) Uh, but but yes so i integrated and i got a job straight away and that saved me because i was able to work in the pub most nights which meant i didn't have to go to the social stuff I had a really good reason why I couldn't be there. I wasn't just fobbing people off or being shy. I couldn't be coerced because I had a shift at the pub. And it's different when you're behind the bar, mm. you, could, you are in control. So you can, you yeah. can be <clears throat> really sociable, talk mm. to everybody, take the drinks, add it all up in your head and do all those things. It's when you're on the other side of the bar with possibly women of your own age mm. would be horrendous. Does that, yeah, does I, that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't really know how to be a human with other humans in a in a small group yes and that's 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 still true now really mm, yeah I'm, I understand. I'm far more likely to I, I go one of two ways I'm either super super quiet and I'm kind of gazing into my phone uh pretending to be really busy on my phone or something uh, but I'm kind of listening to what's going on and that's really nice 
um, especially if, if the other people I'm with are quite chatty. Um, and then the other way I sometimes go is I become the really chatty one. And then I have to be really careful. I, I, like I'll go to the loo or something and then I'll go, I'll run through the last 10 minutes or so and go, are you over talking? Are you talking too loud? Are you making sense? Are you monopolizing the conversation? And I'll have this little conversation with myself about, Sam, you need to just dial it back a bit, perhaps. I never got that memo. So <laughs> I, I was just hyperverbal, special interest, not, not in the slightest bit interesting. And, and, and all they wanted to talk about was Strictly Come, this is later on, Strictly Come Dancing or some uh, This is year, years program. of personal development that's enabled me to recognise these things and have a little bit of a self-talk, a little pet I talk. I do wish I'd known. And so what was your business um, that, you, that you started up for yourself? Right. Well, it wasn't too much later that I, I, I started. So 2008, uh, oh, I, I right. left university in 2000, uh, sorry, uh, 1995. Yes. And uh, I went to, <laughs> went to work for good old British gas <laughs> in a call centre. I was desperate for a job just like everyone else. And, yes. and the promise of a well-paid job after doing a degree just didn't happen. You know, that was a myth. <laughs> well, it still is. Yeah, totally. My, my first job was seven grand a year. I mean... <laughs> and that mine was five and a half thousand no three and a half thousand and I had a Barclay card I'd never felt so rich in my life amazing <laughs> oh, so what dear. next uh yeah so then I worked for the police which was great that oh. was that was where I felt like I was starting to grow up bearing in mind by that time I'm like 24 25 and I'm starting to feel like other people feel when they're 18 yeah. So quite a long kind of delay for me to feel more like a grown up. Yeah. Um, and and it, it being a very serious job, I was in the control room. So I was dispatching oh. officers on the radio. I was taking calls, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and that was cool because my, my brother and my dad were police officers. So it was like keeping it in the family. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I thought about that. <laughs> uh, and then um, the guy I'd met at uni uh, who came from Telford, uh -huh. bought a house in Telford without telling me oh as you do because he wanted to be near his mummy and Darling. yeah <laughs> uh, and he was actually uh, in the Royal Fleet Auxiliary so he was away for five months at a time so he bought the house in Telford I moved to Telford and then he went to sea for five months leaving me in a town where I knew nobody and we know what happens there as a psychotherapist and as a, an author of a book about a man who had neurasthenia you know you put somebody um in a different environment where they've come from what happened How, you know what happened to you what happened to your mental health with that going on i i was very quiet and uncharacteristically quiet yes and i was in a position where i wasn't really able to recognize that he was a narcissist oh dear and don't we attract them yes apparently I don't, of course I didn't know this at the time and so I I didn't know that what I was experiencing at the time was what narcissists do to people gaslighting yes. abusing me verbally in front of others and making mm -hmm. him look good and all that sort of stuff keeping me financially strapped all the time not allowing me to see my family um yeah complete control over me I led a double life when he was away at sea I was me and when he came home I was a completely different version it was very strange very Jekyll and Hyde 
and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading about that in your book because <laughs> you know I, I, I'm the victim of narcissism and coercive behavior as well and I think a, a lot of us are so did you matter well tell me what happened with um, what I did I did I did marry him because I thought he would stop treating me badly and treat me well if he thought I'd committed yeah uh, and he thought that I would stop being so eccentric and annoying and do as I was told once we were married so yes. we had different ideas about what would happen mm. um and he would come home and white glove the house if, if people aren't familiar with that they're they're checking for dust they're checking for anything you might have missed when you did the housework much as yeah. they might do on a on a, a vessel or in, in army training or something like that very very strict um and so I would like mow the lawn uh, at night the night before he came home in the dark I'd leave it as late as I possibly could and I'd be mowing it with a torch and my neighbor used to laugh at me that I was doing it you're you're mad you are doing that and I'm like but it's better than what what will happen if I don't do it and he, but he you've got lots me. of examples of that you know that, that doesn't me, sound surprising to me so verbally um, reduced me to uh, you know a penny <laughs> So um, how did you, um, you know, what did you do? How, where did you go next? Because that's a horrible situation. It was, it was. And um, I'm not very proud of this, but um, I, I, I had an affair. And uh, that person saved me. Because he told me that I was a human being that was worth love and kindness. And that the way I was living wasn't normal. Bearing in mind, I'd come from a household with my mum and dad where I was controlled all the time. So yes. I was used to being controlled all the time. Yeah. I may not have liked it, but that's what I was used to. So that being controlled normal. by my husband wasn't a shock. Yes. But I didn't realise that that's not normal. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how you know, a, a, a partnership should be behaving. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's what he helped me to to realise. And it was never going to be running away off into the distance with him. He had his own family. Um, it it was just a thing. And and so I left my husband, which was really quite shocking. Good. Uh, he was really stunned. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> he was yes, very shocked. That's the best way to do it because if he hadn't been stunned, then it would have been a slow thing and the coercion could have carried on. So yeah. you said, I'm not proud of it, but I, I think you were surviving and should be proud of yourself. And so you left him and um, I'm just looking at, um, at, at our time with so many things to talk about. Tell me what, what you went, you know, and it's, it is fascinating, Sam. It really, really is. What happened then? You left your husband. What did you do then? I, I did. So leaving him was, obviously a, a turning point for sure yeah. and actually I really threw myself into work that I wanted to do because I, I changed jobs as well because of that he, he influenced that as well you left um, uh, British Gas oh I was I'd long gone after British Gas yeah okay. yeah I'd worked for the police I'd left the police oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'd been working as a, an NHL person uh, assistant for a while um and then yeah just I'd gone temping for a bit I had some health issues with my gallbladder to get through and I lost a load of loads of weight. I was quite poorly with that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 I felt like a rebirth. Of yes. sorts. Mm. So he, he gave me half the equity in the house, which was great because I'd done a lot to the house whilst he was away. 
and that enabled me to buy where I am now and uh yeah security yeah it's a little too down but it's great it's all mine doesn't matter it's your place all mine and I was able just to be me for a little bit which was really fantastic Mm -hmm. and it was only really through the experiences I'd had both with him and in some of my jobs where I'd worked for narcissists directly or indirectly that I got the really big break of working at Capgemini and that started in 2006. And what's Capgemini? Capgemini is a big IT firm, big global firm and uh, I worked there for nine years nearly and that's a long stretch isn't it for a job in the neurodivergent community? Yeah I didn't do the same role um, it, so it, it felt it, like it you were changing big. jobs within the company. Yeah. And it, you were able to move around sideways quite a lot, which was really good for me because. Yes, yes I can see that. Being a really quick study, I'd move into a role. Six months later, I've got it down. Yes. I, you know, I don't need to learn any more about the role. I know the role inside out, back to front and upside down. I've made some improvements to it already. And now I'm looking for my next challenge. And they're yeah. like, you really need to be in a role for at least two years before you move on. And I'm like, why yeah it doesn't make any sense to me this is arbitrary two years that you've got written down somewhere <laughs> um, so I got very frustrated there um and, and also there was quite a lot of bullying going on and I ended up helping other people who were being bullied I ended up kind of doing some coaching off the record in my lunch break and um and and because if you report bullying it's a bit career limiting because you've become a problem. Of course, boat rocking, yes. Totally, yeah. Uh, people wouldn't <laughs> for that reason. Um, I always and, did. <laughs> and then they sought me out and I would try and help them with some techniques to manage upwards and, and, and try and mitigate some of the problems they were going through because I couldn't solve it for them, but I could at least try and make it a little bit easier for them. So you had some experience from the um, degree course you'd done, but also it was within yourself. You had a, a natural ability and a, an intuition to know what needed to be done. And because, you know, you didn't know at that point your neurodivergences, it was natural for you to help these people and be compassionate and empathic. And, and uh, so that was kind of how you sort of started within coaching. So where mm-hmm. did you go from there? Yeah, so it's, it started with me, uh, not only the coaching, but also the training. So Because I consume training. Oh, I love it so much. I'm still a sponge. I yes. can't help it. Mm-hmm. I, I find that I, I know I know what I have learned in my training if I can explain it to somebody else. Yes. And that's the way to train. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd learn it and then I'd immediately seek out somebody to share it with so that I could be sure that's landed for me. Yes. Um, and so I would also be training as well as coaching people. And then that morphed into, I really like doing this. I'm really, I'm getting a lot out of this in terms of feeding my soul yes. and being of service to people far more than doing my day job and getting a wage packet, which does nothing for me whatsoever. Yes. I just feel like a corporate robot. And I always, I'm always in fear of doing something wrong, saying something wrong. I hated the open plan office that I had to work in. The stimulation was ridiculous. Being next to a kitchenette, being next to a photocopier, being next to a security door where you've got, can you let me in every five minutes? You have to get out of your chair. 
you know oh just horrendous and now I'm, I'm there now feeling all oh. those sensory oh. not allowed to wear headphones all that kind of rubbish yeah um just horrendous all you need is a radio playing in the background and you're there really oh so I, I said to them I want to go down to three days because I'm getting really burnt out I'm, I'm not enjoying this it's it's incredibly stressful for me being here it takes on so much of my energy i want to go down to three days please and they yeah. said if you find the right codes for, to cover those three days then we'll talk again so off i toddled and found three codes for those three days obviously because yes. <laughs> that's what i wanted to do yeah <laughs> and yeah. then the guy said oh no no um you can't no you can't do that um you'll you'll have to stay with five days and i i said well no that's that's not that's not the option that's the no word. We don't like the no word. There's three options here in your head, but there's only two in my head. Yes. Because <laughs> that third option, stay on five days, isn't an option. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, uh, so can I ask about the three days? Why, why I can't do the three days? Oh, we don't want to set a precedent, you know, of someone doing three days. And I said, but there's five other people in this organisation who are doing three days. And I peeled off their names because I'd obviously gone to talk to them. You've got to. You've got to have the evidence, haven't you? You've got to and have he was, evidence. And he was a bit cornered. Um, yeah. And he said, well, well, I, I can't authorise it. And I was like, okay, not a problem. So I took out of my pocket my resignation letter and gave it to him. And I said, um, so I've got quite a lot of holiday backed up, which is one of the reasons why I'm so burnt out. So um, you've got three days before I leave. You might want to get someone to come and sit with me for a handover. That's the way to do it. And he was a bit shocked, but I felt very empowered. And I'd already discussed with my husband, my new husband, my second husband, whoever I mentioned yeah. it, um, that I was either going to do this or that. So he knew this wasn't like, by the way, honey, I've lost my job when I got home. This was discussed and agreed, and this is what I was going to do. Yeah. So I, I knew I had his backing as well. Yeah. And, uh, and then I said, right then, so this is my opportunity to really get my business going. <laughs> so tell me about the business, because I've got um, quite a few things down here. So um, I'm not going to feed it to you. What, what, so tell me about the business. So, yeah, just um, going into organisations and helping them write lists of reasonable, ad reasonable adjustments, accommodations, adaptations, things people can ask for when they're being interviewed, uh, giving people more information than they perhaps have in the past. Like, if you're coming for an interview, let me tell you what the parking situation is. Let me tell you how close the railway station is. Um, let me say to you, our offices tend to be a bit on the warm side, um, so you might want to come and wear something light. Yeah. You know, that kind of information that nobody ever gives you. You know, yeah. if there's a particular drink you like, you can bring it with you in a flask or in a bottle. That's absolutely fine because I might not want to drink their coffee or stuff out of the machine or whatever. So do yeah. I sit there with no drink, you know, um, the fact that I'm very sensitive to light. So if people were interviewing me and they were up against a window, I would just see them in silhouette and I'm yeah. staring at the white behind the silhouette mm. and I would not be able to look at them at all. No matter how much I've trained myself to look at people in the eye, I yeah. wouldn't be able to look over that way. Yes. It hurts. It <laughs> the contrast is too sharp. So those kind of things. So I tried to enlighten businesses that if you have these listed, 
then you can give them to people and say, tell me what you need from this list. Because businesses will say, oh, all you have to do is self-advocate. But that's really hard. It's really hard for people who do know they've got some of these labels we were talking about. But it's even harder for people who don't even know that they might have those differences about their brain. All they know is everything is hard. But they already have... They've already put in place all these different things throughout their lives. And the whole point is for us as advocates within the neurodivergent community is to get more of us out there. Get, get, you know, I, I saw a fantastic um, infographic yesterday and mm. it was absolutely brilliant, which I'll use and it can go into companies. So um, is that the job you're doing now? Yeah, that's the job I do now. So that's that's the biggest part of the job, helping organisations get it right. Yes. But inevitably, I, I am approached by individuals who are either in work and struggling or are finding it hard to get through the interview process. Yes. Um, and sometimes it's mums and dads of, of kids who are like, oh, my, my, my child's just got a diagnosis. Is that the end for them? You know, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm autistic and I've had... 25 years in, in corporate, I've held down a job all this time, you know, paid my bills, got a house, drive a car, got married. You know, it's not the end of the world, I promise. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. And it's, but we need so many more of us doing that. So, um, so how, what else do you do? Because you, you have this incredible job, but I do have to ask you in the time we've got together about the two um, incredible things that you do and I'm not going to say what they are I want you to tell me about them because um, they're fantastic I'm scratching my head trying to think what is it so I've run 10x Telford I hope that's one of them Maybe no. <laughs> autistic interpreter oh the well that so the, the autistic interpreter is the moniker I give myself a couple of reasons one Sam Warner um, if you put that into Google, you get one of the Warner Brothers, right? So it's quite <laughs> hard to compete yeah. against a Warner yeah. Brother in terms yeah. of getting onto Google page one. Yeah. So um, being able to be known for something very specific and niche was really important. Yes. Um, and the fact that I, I lived for so long as someone who was trying to be neurotypical, trying to fit in, trying to use their language, when inside my language is my autistic language, I'm able to translate between the two, hence the interpreter. But I so, think it's fantastic. I think the title, absolutely, and then you use this phrase yourself earlier, it says what, it, you know, it does what it says on the tin. And, it, and I think it's absolutely perfect, you know, because we are, in a way, a different culture. You know, we're, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we're diverse and we do speak a different language and we need more people to understand um, what we, not just what we need as far as the sensory side, the words we, lead, we use, the language we use, the advocates, you know, and everything else that we do. And you do, um, and so thank you very much for telling me that, Sam. And something else um, I'd just like to add, something very close to my heart is uh, public speaking. Um, I feel confident and in my comfort zone when I'm at the lectern talking to hundreds of people put on a table with six women of my own age in a restaurant and I'm anxious and I feel uncomfortable. It's too noisy and I can't keep up with the superficial conversations and alcohol at that time used to be how I managed those situations in the past. So how do you support autistic people who want to communicate more effectively? And I'd love it if you can give me an example of a person that you remember specifically who's gone on to achieve their goals through your mentorship. Yeah. So, 
in terms of support, I try to run through specific scenarios and we'll talk about how that could go differently next time because quite often the scenario will come up again and again and again. Yeah. A bit like, um, so I was advising someone about how to take turns in conversation. Brilliant. So if they were finding that people were not seeking them out for conversation or they felt that people were cutting them off short and turning to someone else to talk to them, you kind of start to get a vibe, don't you? You go, why do people want to talk to me? I didn't get the vibe. People would just turn their head and then I'll be rejection sensitivity dysphoria Sally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because nobody ever tells you it's because you talk too much about the one thing. You don't let us have a chance to talk as well. So if somebody, well, if somebody said, that said that to me, I would have, I would have been in tears. I, yeah, I would have been mortified, but I'd have got over it. Yeah. And I'd have gone, okay, how do I fix it? Yes. You know, and that's what it's like with feedback, isn't it? There's that uh, moment and then there's the, oh, okay. <laughs> but you uh, seem to have been learning this when you were really young. I mean, this is, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated about, Sam. And what's so amazing about you is you, you, were, you were learning those tools. You were seeing it within yourself and then you were teaching other people and training other people to, to do it. So please tell, yeah, carry on with what you were telling me about people yeah so so it's 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 those kind of scenarios where i can help people and, and i'll i'll give you the, the the so what on that so in terms of learning how to take turns and actually listen to the other person is you can't make me care about what you're going to talk about right so that yes. that's still that's still there right yes but what i can do is i can step into the persona of somebody who does care so i might be in a networking meeting and i'm sam the networker and sam the networker does care about what the other person is saying and is interested in what the other person is saying and it's not all about me today's actually all about them I want to get to know other people so I have like an agenda that I'm trying to satisfy obviously I don't tell other people that I, I yes. just behave that way and that works in that scenario because people love talking about themselves of course so you let them have the floor you look really charismatic and gosh you're such a good listener and oh yeah i really like you and you become someone they want to spend time with and want to talk to which is obviously really good for business but also good for me because i i'm not getting that rejection that i used to get yes and i'm Perfect. actually listening to their answer and then i might ask a question based on their answer i'm not just waiting for the pause so i can leap in and that's what, as a psychotherapist, that's absolutely what I do as well. And walking down the street and meeting somebody in the street, and I remember their son's names, what schools they go to, their favourite music and everything else, because there's something about us that are able to take that information and use it to our advantage. But it's, it's, it is really important, isn't it? And you, you have such a flair, and that is your profession. That's what you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, and another example is I helped a director of a finance team who had three people on her team. So half her team were most definitely on spectrum. None of them had been diagnosed. And she was really struggling with how she interacted with them. She herself was most definitely undiagnosed ADHD without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And she was barking orders at them at 100 miles an hour. They were, if you imagine a cat with flat ears going, yes. oh, yes. Um, and she wasn't, because her brain works so fast all the time yes. and is firing on all cylinders constantly and really sharp, she kind of expected everyone in the team to have the same kind of brain activity. Mm. So I had to take her through a few sessions, just me and her, to help her understand how the brain might be different in the way it processes information, 
the repetition it might need, the different examples for abstract concepts that some people need in order to land it. They can't, yeah. you can't just give them one example, they might need 10 before they get it. Yes. And whilst that might be annoying to someone with ADHD who's like, I've given you an example, come on. Yes, yeah. That other person needs more. How did and, you and cope with um, the learning? Because with my RSD, 50% of me can take, and I do, and I have done all through my life, I can take the criticism, it's fine, it helps me to grow. The yeah. other 50% is the emotional side or the unfairness and the injustice of it, and that's crippling. So was she quite grown up and um, interested in what you were saying and taking it on board? Yeah, she was. I mean, I'm, I'm very diplomatic with my language and very careful because everybody's egos, you know, delicate. Yes, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're not self-aware. And so I was giving her tools that I thought she could use with her strengths that would make her look very benevolent and um, she, she would feel like she had control. Um, but it also meant that she was putting a little bit more effort in, but she was getting the rewards she was hoping to get out of it. So I kind of helped her to create a halfway house where she kind of got what she wanted. And the other person also wasn't just kind of, told off or pushed to one side or marginalized in any way because of her need for it to be done now and you would have been able to um seen her strengths and and gone through the strengths with her so that she felt as though she was validated she was doing a really ah. good job and it was more of a scientific thing it's just that that's Absolutely. how the brain works these people are a little bit different yeah. um, maybe try that if it works and, and see how you get on and then she could have practiced it and said you're absolutely right and and is that would it have gone around that sort of yeah way? that exactly that kind of thing and I got her to try things and then we talk about how it went and whether we needed to tweak it further but the things that she tried were working really well and then about six months later she came back to me and said um your rules of engagement training can you come and do it on my team so I came back and I delivered the rules of engagement for her team as well including her and that's about helping the team to become self-aware create their team culture by identifying their team values agreeing our communication styles and preferences and making sure they know the difference between empathy and sympathy and uh, in informing them about neurodifference in particular uh, because obviously financial sector it sector engineering sector do stereotypically attract a neurodivergent mind and and what you were offering was um, a whole package it was it, it it helped everybody you know you were listening you were validating you were giving the evidence of you know you were setting goals you were rehearsing success you were doing all of these things and making it work and because other people could see it very very clearly or listen to it or touch it or do whatever they needed to do it worked and that was brilliant um i'd love to ask you if i may um uh, about um your your final thing that I, I i just absolutely love years ago with my mum and dad um we used to sit and listen actually it was on an lp to this absolutely fantastic um it was michael benteen um and it was called the toastmaster and, uh, my mother if you could see her and she would have had a few gin and oranges the hysterics that she would be in she would wet herself <laughs> listening to the um, Toastmaster by Michael Benteen and I've got to ask you 
tell me about this side. <laughs> well, I, I've been Toastmasters International for 11 years and I've got a lot to thank Toastmasters and the members therein because it's the, the one place where I can be 100% myself without judgment. You get very good quality feedback and evaluation, what worked, why it worked, what didn't work so well, why it didn't work so well. And here's a suggestion on how you could fix it if you want to. Here's a suggestion. Um, or, or if you were to deliver that speech again, you could try this instead in order to marry up your body language with your words or whatever it was that needed a tweak. And, and that wasn't just about getting up and doing a speech and having the feedback for that. It was getting feedback on the roles in the meeting, being a committee member, being a district officer. And there's no way I was ever going to get like properly promoted at work. I got promoted once in nine years and that was very low level. It wasn't to like a manager or anything. It was just promoted within the, you know, the team. Yeah. Um, and, and that's only because somebody stuck their neck out for me. Mm. It would never have happened otherwise. So I knew I was never going to get any lofty heights in corporate. And yet, in Toastmasters, I am well respected. I'm sought after for delivering keynotes and conference workshops and all sorts of stuff like that. I've been to Sweden to give keynotes and things like that at the conference. And that's, that's really good for my ego, if I'm perfectly honest, because respect is my number one value. And I, um, I have um, a friend who's a compare at our local comedy store. And, uh, what, and, and it seems to be a bit similar to that in a way. I think there might be quite a lot of people who would find the whole role of being a stand-up comedian, for instance, too difficult. That's just too much of, because people need to be, you know, neurodivergent people need to be 100% honest. I mean, of course, we do have some fantastic comedians. But um, as a compare, you can just add your little bits in and be like a keynote speaker and get things moving and and things like that. But it's it, it's I love that job and, and and I could see myself doing that actually. And um, we're going to wind it up and and I and I am going to say thank you so much indeed for coming onto the podcast. I've I've been fascinated and and actually I've taken an awful lot and I've learned a lot from what you've um, told me. But just in a couple of minutes, if you'd be so kind, Sam, can you just, um, I know it's difficult to do this succinctly because it's a big question, but um, I ask all my guests this, what, pos what positive change at home, at school and in the workplace do you think needs to happen to make sure all neurodivergent people are accepted and included as valued members of society? That is a great question. And it's answered in my TEDx, which I'm doing on Thursday, which is really good. I'm doing a TEDx talk at TEDx Malvern, and it's called The New Rules of Engagement. And it talks about how education is the primary way we're going to nail this. Yeah. I'm talking about primary school, self-awareness, uh, eradicating bullying because your ego doesn't need to be pepped up because you're self-aware, uh, faster understanding, kindness. Uh, kids are much better at accommodating different kids. I've seen it myself because I teach kids public speaking for fun. Uh, and I used to be scared of kids. <laughs> and, uh, and, and getting rid of that fear at work. So the thing about fear is it's usually because of a lack of information or education. 
So as soon as you give the education and information, the fear goes away or or lessens massively. So if people at work have that education and information, then the ignorance goes, the stigma goes. There's no problem with saying, hey, guys, I have ADHD. These are my needs. So education is the key word there. And I and I do um, agree with you 100 percent. And as a parent of um, two, you know, 21 year old and a 19 year old, it is, you know, it starts at the home as well. And for parents, because even if the parents neurodivergent and they don't know that they are, they're they're not diagnosed, they can go through their whole life not being like that. They will go into denial and not want to know about it. It it has to be um, a holistic and global and all-encompassing education I, I, be, I believe what you say completely it's education education and making it interesting so that we're not pitchforks at dawn and trying to shove it down your throat <laughs> that we market it and provide it in a way that people say I never knew that I want to know more and and it wouldn't help it wouldn't hurt to have a few celebrities helping us thank you so much um sam i thoroughly enjoyed our time together and um and you know all the best for your toastmastering your autistic um interpreting and your everything that you do and i know i'll be following you still in social media and all the best for your ted talk i am so looking forward to that being published and listening to it thank you so much Thank you, Sally. Thank you for having me. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.